Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Luke Vanderlaan. Luke is the Program Director of the Professional Studies Program at the University of Southern Queensland in Australia. He's previously held senior executive leadership positions and currently serves on numerous academic advisory councils and committees. Luke is passionate about future studies, foresight as an innate human capability, the criticality of foresight in leadership, and the development of social foresight. He completed a Master's of Philosophy looking at future studies at the Institute of Futures Research at the University of Stellenbosch, and his PhD investigated organisational strategy as it relates to foresight and strategic thinking capabilities in leaders. Luke's primary research interests are in the area of futures research, human futures, systems theory, foresight, and the strategic thinking of organisational leaders. His book, Foresight and Strategy in the Asia-Pacific Region, builds on these themes through presenting measurement of foresight and strategic thinking capabilities, and concerningly, he has evidence that there is low levels of foresight generative thinking amongst Asia-Pacific industry leaders. Welcome to FuturePod, Luke. Thank you for the opportunity, Peter. It's great to be here. Great to have you, Luke. Good to talk. Question one, the Luke Vanderland story. How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Um, I'm a migrant son. So my, my parents migrated out of Europe, uh, the Netherlands, just after the war. And uh, I basically grew up in South Africa with stints in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain because my father was an engineer. So uh, basically grew up there, was educated in South Africa and, uh, and traveled a bit in my early 20s, got a bit of a sense of what the world was like uh, more broadly, and then went into industry. And uh, over time, I uh, managed to get into senior positions where I started developing an understanding of the importance of uh, leadership and to be sure, very disappointed as I continued working in that space. You'd be in boardroom meetings or you'd be in executive management meetings and there was just this total absence of understanding consequence and agency, as an example. So I became quite frustrated, but I didn't know what was going on. No. And so I, um, I went to the Institute of Futures Research where, lo and behold, uh, this whole new world just opened you found up. you found a discipline you found, <laughs> you found a community exactly right i mean i had studied law i had studied commerce i'd done all those things but suddenly the you know the the truthfulness of futures just dawned on me and i could put into place in my experience in my practice i could put into place what was going on and you know i, I latched on to some of the Big readings uh, at the time, you know, uh, Jovenel and Wendell Bell and uh, Zia uh, Sadar and Sahel and uh, Richard, etc. And they all, and, and more pragmatically, Andy Hines, you know, he made yeah. quite an impression at the time. And uh, I said, okay, 
I I get it now. Well, what that did was it, it, it escalated my frustrations. <laughs> <laughs> you took the red pill and now you couldn't go back. Correct. I became an embittered executive. Um, <laughs> so I, I very frustrating to try and get people to think in a more responsible way is the best way I could put it, you know. Yeah. I believe that at a leadership level, you're taking responsibility and you have a fiduciary duty to at least entertain the thought of looking forward uh, with consequence, right? Mm. So I got to a point where I just said, it's time for a career change. It's time to get out of this space. It's not healthy. And we migrated to Australia, took all the savings we had. And with my wonderful wife and family, we... um, we embarked on a a PhD in uh, Australia. I was going to come to you, Peter. I was going to come to I talked to I talked to out of it. I was going to go and study in Melbourne, but then I said, uh, I tell everyone, uh, you know, it wasn't me choosing uh, University of Southern Queensland or Toowoomba. It was Toowoomba choosing us, just as a family, yeah. and everything else worked out really well here. Yeah. So my interest really then was to look at this intersection between leader capabilities and the decisions they make, more specifically the strategic decisions. And so I started playing in that space, obviously recognizing this notion of foresight as an innate capability, right? So we've all got it. So why why aren't we using it and being smarter about stuff? Within the same context of why are we compartmentalizing time you know everything isn't quite past present and future that's far more dynamic than that and so that was where I was going but I I had a chip on my shoulder I guess because I wanted to call out with evidence I wanted to call out what was going on more generally in leadership because ultimately these leaders are one of the biggest variables changing our society, right? So this was where I, my concern was starting. I had, in practice, I had experienced this severe lack of foresight, severe lack of providence. And now I want to embark on, number one, how does it all work? This connection between our orientation to time, our behavior in, in relation to time, and then the decisions we make, right? And so that's that's where the PhD sat was to go and to go and do. At that time, I had a professor, my supervisor, who said, "It's got to be empirical." In fact, why don't we go for positivism? Why not <laughs> modern science? And I said, "You got you don't understand. This is this is not a this is not a field that really goes there, right?" Anyway, I ended up doing something like that because I did understand the importance of getting some kind of evidence and that people were willing to look at to to prove the point. Now, philosophically, I, I think I'm a constructivist, but I had to adopt a different way of thinking in the study, which which actually in in retrospect was very helpful. Mm. So that's where I'm at now. I've designed a master's and doctoral program, full research program, but for practitioners. And it's based on the notion of work-based learning. And uh, we've got about 160 uh, master's and doctoral students 
all doing research in relation to their work. What a novel idea. <laughs> it was one of those hiding in plain sight things. Yeah. You know, it's universities don't do this well, right? Anyway, so we developed this program, which just hit it off straight away. It was it's gone gangbusters, hasn't well, it? Yeah, yeah. And the impact from it is obviously very, very pleasing to see mm. because there I'm seeing this agency take place and so on. And part of that process was actually to to revisit the definition of work uh, and separate it from the economic definitions, the workplace definitions. The you know work is also an expression of our um, professional identity, if I can call it that, or our identity. And our humanity. And our humanity, quite right. And yet you keep on bumping into these theories of work, which are all around remuneration, transactional uh, relationships, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I just completely reject that. So that got me into a really interesting space. I bet it did in a university system where it's still industrial and you're trying to basically being a humanistic perspective alongside the industrial. It's precisely what happened. And so being a humanist within this space, allowing, allowing students to explore that, right, it's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And then I did what Sahel refers to as futures, futures by... Uh, oh. Stealth futures. Futures by stealth. Um, and so I've got around about... 10 to 15% of that 150-odd students that are doing futures studies. Um, and that was my sort of way of, of promoting futures and futures thinking within this yeah. more amorphous space of um, work. So I'm the director of that program, and I was hoping that the university sector would develop an appetite for this kind of way of doing things, but it seems we've got to go back to hard, hard sciences. Yeah. If I ask you the question, I don't. Think, I think I can almost guess the answer. Given the enthusiasm of people to actually learn about themselves and their work and how to make a difference in their workplaces and therefore become happier and more effective leaders, has there been any interest in within the university itself as a workplace to possibly even explore aspects of the university using those ideas? Exactly right. Uh, there's just this unidimensional view mostly based on transaction and performance, right? Mm. And the notions of performance and remuneration and appraising performance and productivity, and they're still being promoted in a obsessive way. I think it's damaging humans. And surely a university should be the place where new ideas can emerge. But unfortunately, we're not in that kind of system right Another novel idea. That's two now, Luke. Oh, boy, three's a crowd. Okay. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks, mate. Second question. This is the opportunity to talk to listeners about a framework and epistemology, a kind of concept for you that holds together how you actually do your work and sort of explain it both as a framework, but also into how you use this framework or tool. So you can range your way up ontology, epistemology, you know, you choose what you want to talk about. Look, as I said uh, just now, um, I am in essence a constructivist, a humanist, 
and that's where I'm ideologically quite comfortable. In my work, my futures work, I'm just astonished by the brilliance of some of the people that are in my space or in this futures research space and mm. and their ideation and, and the way they put things is just phenomenal. And I'll leave most of that work up to them. I'll try and contribute where I can by obviously developing views on, on futures, but they're more pragmatic. So I guess in the futures research space, I would be described as a bit of a pragmatist. You know, I see, see a problem, and these could be big problems like, you know, the exponential increase of mental health issues worldwide or uh, leadership not being capable or certainly equipped to make big decisions and steer us toward a providential future. Those are problems that I like to focus on. And mm. much like my students... Oh, my partners in the program, I don't like to refer to them as students because we do stuff together. And much like they've learned from me, I learned from them. Awesome. And uh, that's been wonderful in the sense that I've been able to frame certain issues. And as I've mentioned, the two that I'm most interested in, and that's the sort of leadership, the importance of leadership and not understanding it the way that necessarily is currently being theorized, but understanding it from a future's providential way um, and then the other area is the uh, mental health and how we as a society i believe are being dumbed down it's a real existential threat so those are the two sort of problems that i look at and the one in particular that's emerging for me right now and i want to deal with it right now is um it's just how we as a futures community present ourselves and the work we do First, from my personal experiences, but then as I further explored this, I realized that foresight and developing alternative futures is very separate action cognitively to actually arriving at the decision making. And so this, this place of the work we do has become of great importance, I think, for us as a community, I think for us as, as a field. I think as a discipline, but more importantly, as humans, I think that there's a place for foresight and anticipating the future and having, having systems that can anticipate the future and teams and groups and families and communities who anticipate the future. This is really where I'm at. Mm. But the anticipation of the future is quite different to arriving at a decision and then putting a train of action in place. Now, that's the nexus that I'm interested in, is going from the development of alternative futures, possible futures, into the decision-making realm. And unfortunately, the majority of the decisions are made by others. Luke, I think you can handle this question, otherwise I wouldn't probably ask it. <laughs> Do you think that as a field, we have either consciously or unconsciously preferred to stay in the anticipation space because it's exciting and limitless and creative and generative and we've 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 tended to shy away from stepping in as a partner or supporter of that messy political nasty decision making process in other words we sort of kept ourselves pure 
by just staying in the anticipation space and then kind of handing it over to the people in organisations saying, well, here you are, we've done this wonderful, beautiful piece of work, over to you. And unfortunately, a lot of that work goes missing. Um, And Michelle Godet really deals with this quite neatly. The truth of the matter is, and this is from uh, countless gigs in, in corporates in Southeast Asia, Peter, the people in the decision-making space, they're usually quite apathetic about this. I mean, they, they're operating on a short-term delivery model, and when things go wrong, it's too late to do anything proactive. And that's just the reality of the practice, right? Now, that doesn't mean we can't step up and we can't be influential, and that's precisely the point. We should be more influential. That's what's missing. It's not a question of whether we find this nice, comfortable space and are armchair critics of everything around us. No, that's not what I mean. I mean, providentially, we need to step up and have a defensible proposition to make, which is we want to provide a input into decision-making, and that is influential. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the sort of nexus we've got to get at. We've got political leaders, it's politically messy. We've got university leaders, also politically messy. We've got corporations, also politically messy. And the only ones that really stand out are entrepreneurs, but that's because they've developed a vision and grabbed a whole lot of people with them to go on the journey. So, you know, with the exception of of a few, generally we have this disconnect between the decision maker and, and providential thinking. You talk about apathy of leaders. If they do not think they are going to bear the cost of making short-term decisions, if they believe that their access to information and resources means that they can get out of harm's way, is that part of what contributes to them saying, really, why would I care about the future? Because I think I'll be fine. Absolutely spot on. Absolutely spot on. Now, that's the issue, is modern day leadership is highly protected from consequences. This runs into an insurance industry. Now, here's the thing, right? Go to any medium to large enterprise, and, and especially in government, but across the board. You know what the practice is? When it comes to decisions about direction and the future, let's pay a lot of money to a consultant because then it's the consultant's responsibility. And the more the more reputation the consultant's got, let's say it's a McKinsey, the more protected I am for anything that goes wrong. They're on the hook and I'm not. Correct. And so what they do is they defer the responsibility of interrogating the future and making decisions based on that to the consultant yeah. or to the to the money that's paid for it. You've used the term at least three times, and I'm going to get you to actually expand on it because I think it's what you're talking about, providential thinking. Absolutely. What do you mean by providential thinking in leadership? Well, I, I guess I'd bring it right back down to the definition of foresight as an innate human characteristic, right? Providential is the way I understand it, sits fairly and squarely in the definition of foresight, the idea of interrogating the future, exploring the possibilities of the future in order to arrive at a decision that is beneficial to society, to the environment that you're operating in. So the idea is we're not using 
an interrogation of the future or developing possible futures to, to harm anyone. It's more about what's the best for us. Now, some would argue that would include a profit motive for a corporate. The argument is, yes, that's potentially providential in that it'll help everyone in the organization get wealthier and happier, I suppose. But even then, you see corporations are starting to recognize that providence includes not investing in fossil fuel Mm. or not investing in tobacco products or preserved processed foods. That's what I mean by providence. There is the consequential question that a good foresight exercise does, and that says, what are the consequences of these different possibilities and are they in everybody's best interest? And then putting forward, and we think these might be the preferred futures. Thanks, Luke. Third question, the one where I get you to practice a bit of constructivist providential futures and ask you, what are the emerging futures around you that you are particularly paying attention to? So I am continuing my work around Natalie Dean's and Jay Gary's and then my psychometric measurement of foresight styles. So unfortunately, in my post-positivist PhD (laughs) research... (laughs) Note my unfortunate, something good did emerge. Yeah. And, and what emerged was two things. The first one was I used structural equation modeling, which basically if I'm crazy today, it's because of that. It was brutal in hard work, but it, it was good in the sense that you can model certain uh, phenomena, problems, and you can actually go and measure parts of them, right? And so the foresight, that was the one benefit, was the modeling. Hey, you can model this stuff. And the second thing was further developing the foresight styles assessment, but within the context of strategic thinking and foresight as two separate constructs. Mm-hmm. And the idea being that you do the foresight and that provides an input into your strategic thinking, which then helps you formulate your, your decisions and your, and your strategy. And I was able to clearly delimit these two constructs, the foresight construct and the strategic thinking construct. And I included the time styles inventory, which was uh, Fortunato and Fury's mm. instrument. And so we got this thing going, right? And then we went and uh, surveyed 300-odd leaders, and, um, and we were actually very clear on this these two capabilities being highly related but separate Mm. and so i thought oh this is great we've got something here that we can measure kind of psychometrics and we don't have a lot of quantitative work in the futures field so this is good but bear in mind that sadar and sahel had an enormous impact on me when i was studying so true as writers reign my thesis was examined and the feedback was, this is great, but why did leaders do this? <laughs> and so I've had three studies uh, since then from my doctoral students, which have actually used CLA. Yeah. 
to unpack and gain a deeper understanding of these phenomena in the sort of leadership space and so on. So I guess what I could sum it up as, in my research, I'm very much a pragmatist, which suggests mixed methods. So I'd like to have a little bit of measurement and, and then I mix it up with qualitative methods, you know, divergence mapping, CLA, bit of scenario work. Uh, in fact, I've got two doctoral students that, that have done that right now, um, where they, they brought um, the psychometrics in. And here's a first. So what we did was we said, hey, wait a minute, there's this theory called strategic leadership theory, which suggests that the characteristics of a leader will be reflected in the future of the organization. And that's a really handy theory for futures because, hey, wait a minute, if we can identify the characteristics or the capabilities of leaders, there is some predictive value here in the theory, right? And so what we have moved into, and that's part of the research, is um, is saying, well, let's measure their foresight and strategic thinking capabilities as predictors of how they are likely to behave mm -hmm. and shape their organization. And? And it's not looking good, <laughs> but we, we then integrated that into, you know, into environmental scanning and, and a scenario building process. And it was really fascinating because these leaders were mostly reactive. And so we could say, well, if they're mostly reactive now, then the likelihood of this scenario is higher than that scenario. Yeah, And that was very helpful. I'm interested to know, you are both collecting data of the current trajectory of leadership, foresight capacity, and strategic intent, and you're looking at a world at the same time. So you're probably sensing things that you think would indicate we are clearly on the wrong path, and things are probably going to get worse. But you're also sensitive to things that are starting that might actually be divergent points, pivot points. Absolutely. What do you think is going on with mental health, and what's it showing and at the same time, what, where do you find hope that it might turn around? I think the whole world is experiencing environmental changes that we have not had the time to evolve to handle. Yep. And so as a result, we've got, a, we've got communities both in, the, both in the developing and in the developed, so-called developed nations of the world, all experiencing this together. Clearly, the incredible gap in wealth between rich and poor countries are a major issue, but I don't think that that makes the citizens of the poorer countries any more immune than what the, the citizens of a rich country are. So I think this Well, in fact, the data is the opposite way, isn't it? Yes, exactly right. So I'm really, really concerned. And one of the indicators of something's going wrong is the incredible exponential nature of mental health issues. And the way that this is starting to manifest itself is it's breaking down a social fabric that generally is a source of hope. You know, as a community, as a society, we can face challenges together and we can respond to these challenges. But my fear is that these challenges are, uh, are breaking down that very fabric that that makes us strong. Yep. And so as a result, we're getting different things happening. The one is 
increasing levels of antisocial behavior, more so than ever before. People are rejecting society through their behavior. Uh, then we've got a massive stream that are looking to self-medicate. Substance abuse is also exponentially increasing. But the interesting one that's, that I've kept my eye on a bit is that the meditative backslash positive mental health behaviors have also increased exponentially. Mm. So 15 years ago, you'd probably have to drive 50 Ks to go and uh, do a yoga class. Now you just go around the corner. Yep. So humans are responding to this breakdown in society, societal fabric uh, in different ways. It doesn't take away the cause. And I know the cause is complex and I wouldn't want to simplify it. But in my mind, I just don't think we have the capacity to mentally be able to digest everything that's going on around us and then coming in through us. Um, and that's creating physical uh, dissonance. Personal, you know, our human systems are starting to deteriorate. And uh, it's a major issue because we are starting to see much more than a critical mass uh, of mental health issues in our society. Mm. So I'm going to ask you again, as a, as a leader, as a partner, as a father, what are you doing with, based on that awareness and knowledge? What is your approach? What is your practice that you're developing to both build your own capability and spread the capability of others? Even though it's only a drop in the ocean, I'm finding that the impact of the research that's happening in, in my professional life is making a difference. Mm -hmm. These are people that are in the industry. We've got, as an example, we've got people from nursing right through to law enforcement, everywhere, and they're all addressing an issue in their professional space. And they're, and they're actually resolving issues. And I, I, I think that cumulatively, there's quite a lot of synergy going on in that, mm. in that area. And I love that. So I'm promoting that. I'm, I'm encouraging my partners to get on with it and make a difference, right? Uh, personally, I learned the hard way. I ignored what was happening to my own physical system. And um, I started getting too... Two things happened. The one was I wasn't thinking straight anymore, but I also physically broke down two years ago. Uh, I had a collapsed lung and was very, very painful. I almost died, had surgery and so on. And, and I woke up from that and I thought, hey, mate, you're preaching to everyone else. And look at you. You've driven yourself into the ground. All the stuff that you're taking in is not good for you. And so I've become more active, do meditate in different ways. And I encourage my family to do that. And then relational, just try and just try and create, do good by as many relationships as possible within my space. I also advocate. So whenever I do get the chance to talk to a senior leader, you know, I advocate on behalf of futures and I advocate on behalf of what's going on. So I guess that's me. Next question, the communication question. So how do you explain what it is you do when you are talking to people who don't understand what it is you do? Tough call. I usually refer them to some really good, simple, 
explanations of especially futures. Jen Gidley's book is brilliant. So I sort of always have one of those in my pocket somewhere and say, go and have a read of this. And then I try and write. So I don't know if you're aware, but recently Futures published special edition on Richard Slaughter's work. We did. And that's that's an opportunity, I believe, to say, well, this is what Richard was talking about back then. This is where we are right now. Are we checks and balancing ourselves? Are we holding ourselves accountable? Are there things that we should perhaps just revisit? Because at the end of the day, we all want futures to thrive. And I don't think there's one person in our community that doesn't want futures to thrive. So if we can bring that collectively together in our communications, now I'm an academic at this stage, so you know I write. Unfortunately, I haven't written enough in the future space because of my role here and how the university sees our research. But um, yeah, that would be the one way of communicating. The second way is to thank you, um, Peter, because it's great for me to be able to have shared some of my thoughts future space via this podcast so i think this is a wonderful way of doing it too and then just living it i uh, i just live uh, a futures approach embodying the process if people see what it is you're doing they'll often ask you why yeah yeah and that opens up a conversation which is always very helpful i guess the other thing is i would like to see the education, higher education system or tertiary education system just value futures studies a bit more. Yeah. So just on a very pragmatic basis, I've gotten involved with the federation accreditation process. At the outset when we start, we said this is to support, this is to grow, this is to enable, this is to... So everything around that accreditation process is really there to help people, help programs, help the field in in just setting a standard. Standard is negotiable to some extent in a consultative, partnered way. Let's move through an accreditation process. The reason why it's important is not only that it gives access to people all over the world to some really fantastic people in the Federation to help them. But uh, we both know that the currency in a university is bums on seats and accreditations. It's just the way it is. And I feel that if we can get a, a good process up and running for future studies, there at least if we can help one or two programs out there to securing their tenure, to have uh, the credibility and the legitimacy that the accreditation gives them, then we've done one very practical thing to help help the field. Yep. No, I absolutely agree. We've both been having those. They're very hard conversations to have to justify a field like Futures to a, a vice chancellor or something when they really are coming from a very narrow understanding of what it is that's going to help them do their job. I despair. I despair because you're right. That experience of trying to present future studies in the higher education space is an enormous challenge. And I despair at the leaders that don't get it. Last question. 
I'll just give it to you that if you want to sum it up and use this as your both platform and also what your passing message is to the future pod listeners. So what do you want to close with? Well, it's helped me distill the, my thoughts. So thank you very much again for the opportunity. I, I think I, I'm sticking to, well, I guess what I'm best at, and that is to say we as a field must continue the great work we're doing. And we as a field need to get this, how do we influence leadership right? Mm. We really got to get that right. I've had too many experiences of people that love a great foresight show, but then they walk out and they get to the business of making decisions and strategic decisions, and they kind of not influenced enough Mm. to incorporate the work we've done. When I show them a financial problem, then they pay attention. So we've got to learn as a field, how do we negotiate that connection between the foresight and the decision making? And and that's what I'll remain committed to. Because how can I conclude in my book that I'm really worried about the state of leadership in, in in the region that's driving the world to some extent and not carry on advocating that prob- that space and that problem. So that's what I'd like you all to, I guess, recognize is that that's the, that's the problem that I'm working on. And I welcome anybody to work on this problem together with me. We've got to make sure that we are accurate in claiming what we do. We can't say we do something that we don't. And that's part of the problem. Do mention it in that article in Futures. Go and have a read of it, but we've got to be very careful as a field to claim we do something that we actually don't. Yep. Luke, on behalf of the FuturePod community, thank you so much for taking some time out to have a chat. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's actually, it's a real pleasure. So I'm not just going to say it's a pleasure. I'm going to say this was really cool. I loved it. Thanks, Peter. I love the opportunity just to let everybody know Richard Slaughter has been working with the University of Southern Queensland to publish his next book, which is called Deleting Dystopia, Reasserting Human Values in in a Time of Digital Surveillance, and that will be released very soon. Yes, and we're going to get Richard back on the pod after the book uh, emerges. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thanks, Luke. Thanks. Thanks so much, Peter. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.